Welcome to Dermatologically Tested, the podcast of the British Association of Dermatologists. Today's our last episode, so I really hope that you've had a chance to listen to all the episodes this season. Uh, But if not, then you can go back and listen to those. Uh, We certainly would encourage you to do that. Today's episode is all about AI and dermatology. So uh, we're going to be looking at what AI is and how it works. Uh, We're going to be talking about how it can improve the lives of both dermatology patients but also dermatology professionals. And we're going to look at the concerns around AI and using AI in a medical setting. So, you know, whether that's privacy concerns, uh, safety concerns, and the importance of good regulatory frameworks to ensure that patients are safe and getting the best treatment possible. So our guest today is Dr. Rubetta Matten, a consultant dermatologist and chair of the British Association of Dermatologists Artificial Intelligence Working Party Group. Rubetta, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So do you think uh, you could start off by sort of explaining what we mean when we talk about artificial intelligence in dermatology? Sure. So um, artificial intelligence, it's basically when computers perform tasks that normally require human intelligence. So it's when a machine or a system or a computer uses data or rules to make assessments or predictions like humans would, essentially. There are lots of different definitions for artificial intelligence, and there are lots of terms. I mean, we could probably spend the entire podcast just talking about (laughs) the definitions and all the different ways we could explain artificial intelligence. So to different people, it means different things. But there are a few things which I think, you know, people hear and talk about and sometimes are confused about you know, what they mean. So one of the things is, um, you'll have heard people talk about algorithms. So algorithms are basically Mm. like a a formula, if you like, or a set of mathematical instructions. And so in AI, basically, algorithms are used to sort of analyse large sets of data. So lots of information, imagine. So, you know, in healthcare, we're talking about, or in dermatology in particular, we're talking about analysing lots of pictures of patients' rashes or lots of pictures of patients' lesions or maybe lots of information about patients, so, you know, what treatment they've had or what treatment they're on and so on. Um, and these are these are basically data sets, so these are sort of collection of information. And, and for these algorithms to work, essentially you need huge data sets. So you need lots and lots of information so that these formulas can kind of train on this um, information. So, um, and then the other thing I suppose to mention here is that um, people talk about medical devices now, particularly in healthcare. And medical devices are basically where these algorithms are sort of within a software, and this software has capabilities for diagnosing or um, deciding on treatments and so on. And when you've got a software that actually has this AI algorithm included within it, then this is classified as a medical device. Okay, well, that, that's really interesting. Do you think you could um, give us some examples of maybe sl- slightly more typical medical devices that, that don't involve AI? So we have lots of medical devices in dermatology already. Um, for example, the dermatoscope, and many people who are listening to this will have seen that. This is something that dermatologists use. We've They're these handheld microscopes, so they're pretty straightforward devices because they're basically a microscope with a light and that tells us it gives us a a better magnification of you know lesions that we're looking at on somebody's skin Um, but imagine if you had a mini computer within that dermatoscope and then you also had 
a camera that could store a photograph and then you had an AI algorithm that could then analyse that photograph, then you've basically got yourself an AI tool, essentially, that could make a diagnosis um, from that image. So you mentioned there are like many different types of um, AI. It, it would be great if you could sort of touch upon like the main ones we, we might be talking about today. Sure. So one of the main areas of AI that has been applied for dermatology is machine learning. So machine learning is basically where a computer learns automatically from experience without actually you providing any specific instructions. So this usually requires lots and lots of data to do. And it, and the sort of the original application of artificial intelligence was actually through machine learning, where you had this system where basically you were trying to distinguish between two different things. So the, at the most, most basic level, there was a, uh, an algorithm that was developed to basically determine the difference between a cat and a dog. So what they did was they took lots and lots of images of cats and dogs that had been labelled, um, and then they trained an algorithm to basically decide whether if you showed this algorithm a new picture of either a cat or a dog, it would correctly identify that it was a cat or a dog. So this is a great way, you know, if you wanted to know, if you suddenly had a picture of a cat and you wanted to know whether it was a cat or not. (laughs) The problem with that, of course, is then when you show this algorithm uh, a different animal, so for example, a giraffe, and it's never seen a giraffe, the big problem there is that it has to decide between cat and dog. So it will just be a guess between one or the other. And of course, it will be incorrect. So you can imagine if you then take this type of learning and apply it to skin, which is what a lot of people have been doing. So this idea of determining what the diagnosis is from a picture makes sense to us as dermatologists and to people who have skin conditions, because you take a picture of your skin problem and you want to know, well, what is the diagnosis? So it's not, is it a cat or a dog, but is it, is it a melanoma or a type of skin cancer? Or is it actually um, something very harmless, like a wart or something like that? Mm. Um, Or just a regular mole, for example. But the issues with, with this is that it's not quite so simple. There aren't just two options. We've got more than 2000 skin diseases. And then if you take that into consideration, it's a much, much bigger challenge to decide what skin problem you've got. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fascinating area of work. I mean, it's being applied to all kinds of arenas at the moment, not just dermatology, not just health. It's not a computer mimicking a human. It's a computer doing tasks that humans can do, but it's not actually replacing a human. And I think that's one of the things that, that people are worried about or struggle with is that is this going to replace humans? And actually, it can't replace humans. There are so many aspects of human behaviour that a computer will never be able to mimic and replace. And so I think for healthcare, certainly, it is more about how can we work together with computers? You know, how can we have a synergy with computers to actually make healthcare better? You know, how can we actually improve things for our patients? And and the computers will always find ways to go to work around Mm. you know they will always find an easier route um you know humans do that to a degree but but computers will definitely you know have a a quicker way to work that out yeah definitely i mean it's 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 really interesting we've got a nice idea of the way these ais work now from what you've explained but 
what are the areas that we think they're going to be working in? What potential does AI have for dermatology for improving patient care and, and you know the lives of dermatology professionals as well? I mean, I think the potential for um, AI in dermatology and in healthcare in general is immense. And I think we've yet to see it really be realised in even in other specialties where... Mm. Um, you know they're further forward than they, than we are in dermatology in relation to AI. But I think the main areas that we're probably seeing AI being used is as a clinical decision support tool. So I talked about the synergy between doctors and computers and how can um, AI actually support clinicians to do their job better. And I think that's that's a big area at the moment that um, I think we're seeing a growth in in dermatology. The other area, which is pretty big to a degree in dermatology, but more so probably in some of the other specialties, is patient decision support tools. So this is where you've got everybody knows about smartphone apps and they're using lots of apps. And actually, many of these apps are now using artificial intelligence to help either to give people um, diagnoses, so either to help them manage their conditions or indeed give them ideas around um, lifestyle advice. So, I mean, in relation to um, dermatology in particular, there are a few things where we've got apps that allow you to take pictures of moles and then look at them again at a later stage. There are apps that tell you about lifestyle changes such as, you know, using sunscreens and trying to prevent developing skin cancers or prevent ageing of your skin and so on. So there's quite a few that I think there's a big growth market in in the patient um, support tools. And then the other areas which are probably a bit less exciting is about um, administration and processes. So basically, how do we kind of make things much more efficient in the hospital? And anybody who's attended, you know, the hospital will know that they're there the processes are quite slow yeah. and that things can take quite a long time and that we've got these sort of a combination of paper and electronic records and how do we make all of this much more efficient and i think ai is definitely um has a massive role to help us do this and i feel like that's where we can see the biggest benefits and also it will benefit both the clinicians but it will also benefit the patients because it will give the clinicians more time mm. to actually speak to patients rather than worry about filling in forms and you know looking up things on the computer and so on so I think um, that's a big growth area which I think we haven't really seen but I hope will be an area that you know AI will really expand into. Resources in the NHS are so important and using your resources well and one of the key resources obviously in dermatology is the consultant workforce and one thing that we know really well at the BAD is that there's a, a big shortage of dermatologists in the UK, not because uh, there's a shortage of people that want to become dermatologists or anything like that, but because of the demands elsewhere in healthcare for GPs, for people in A&E and so on. And so we get sort of limited number of new dermatologists every year. Mm. And so using their time more effectively could have a huge impact for dermatology. And I suppose part of that is around taking off some of the administrative burden there's a lot of people sort of talk about the red tape in the NHS and the need to sort of cut that red tape um, which can be sometimes be a bit simplistic but it's generally a good thing De no definitely and then the other side I suppose if we can improve referrals I suppose that's something that we we kind of touched on with the diagnosis side you know if we can support mm. GPs to make 
better quality of referrals, then there will be sort of fewer, because a huge amount of dermatology work is looking at benign moles or otherwise harmless things. And so I suppose if you can improve the percentage of people going through with genuine issues, then then obviously that that would be great. So at the moment, I think that is the biggest area that AI is focused on is trying to help that uh, referral pathway between GPs in the community and secondary care specialist services. And I think one of the things around that is that in order to be really sure that you're making the diagnoses correctly, you know, I come back to this this thing about having huge data sets and having lots of images because many of the tools that we've got at the moment basically can diagnose 10 different skin conditions, for example, or a limited number of skin conditions. And we know that there are 2,000, more than 2,000, that GPs will refer or will see and need to think about whether they need to refer in for us to see. Um, so you can imagine if you've got system, you know, thinking back to this, the cat dog system where you've got you've got to choose between one or the other. And if you've only got choice of 10, then what happens to the other 1,990 conditions? You know, they have to either decide they're in one of the 10 options or you just send those patients in. And that's not the best way to manage. Yeah you know, a referral system. And on the other hand, even if you have a situation where you can choose between 10 different things or the don't know option, the don't know option is also not great for patients. You know, they want to be told, actually, it could be one of these things or it's something that we do need some help with. So I think there's a a way to go with this, but I I feel like the potential for it is huge because if we can do that, then as you say, it's going to really help streamline the number of patients that need to come to hospitals and and actually reassure people appropriately that they don't need to come to a hospital and that they don't have anything that you know that they need to worry about obviously we sort of touched on like the positives and the massive potential that ai in dermatology does have but are there sort of any concerns that surround ai being used in a medical setting Um, and it'd be great if you could explain what these might be sure so um i think for me reliability is really the key concern and i think the use of ai you know to make a diagnosis or to predict what might happen is actually you know life-changing implications so this is really important that the reliability of ai is key and central to um, how ai is developed and how and where it's used and this kind of falls into uh, an area around data quality so what we need what i mean by that is the data on which the ai is trained is really important and so you have to almost take a step backward from what is the tool that you've got but actually what what was it trained on to get to the point that it has become at all if that makes sense and and the reason that people i think are quite skeptical about the inner workings of ai is because it's very difficult to see like you don't really it's not visible you can't kind of see it and then it's just in front of you this is a lot of stuff that's going on in the background in a computer and so that i think causes people concern so i think you know going back to the data i think there are lots of things around how you collect the data who the data relates to so you know where did it come from how it was collected who contributed to it did they give permission to give those images and so on so for for dermatology in particular did patients agree that they wanted to share these images to be tested on and for this algorithm to be developed 
And also, what do we know about those patients? So do they really represent the people that you want to actually use this tool in? So, for example, if we take the referral pathway example, so the patients that are uh, seeing their GPs um, with skin problems. So if you use a tool in general practice in the community, then you need to know that it was tested and validated or, you know, that it was trialled on people who were in the community. There's no point in trying to roll out a tool which tested on just images from the internet, for example, because we don't know that they're real life images, we don't know who they relate to, and they're not necessarily representing the population in which you're trying to, you know, use this tool. Um, And I think one of the most important things that's come out recently across many specialties, but in particular dermatology, is that we know that the way that we collect data in healthcare isn't always representative of every individual so it's not representative of all ages it's not representative of all gender it may not be representative of skin of color and so we what we really are looking for is you know was this data set actually inclusive did it have everybody um, represented within it because then you feel confident that actually if that AI tool was trained on a representative data set that it could then be applied to the population that you think it would work in. So I think it's it's about what it was trained on and how confident are you that it was trained in a representative population and that, that it is reliable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the sort of thing that it's, it's quite easy to take for granted that, well, it's a computer algorithm. It can't have mm. biases. What you put in is what you're going to get out. Yeah, completely. If the, the data set that you, yeah. you put into the machine has bias built in you know maybe you went to a football ground in Iceland and got data from a load of Icelandic football fans and then you try to apply it to a suburb in South London you know you're not going to get good results there I suppose. No and it does no exactly and it doesn't make sense and I think that's one of those things around you know if you want to use a tool in the UK you really need to have tested it in a UK population and that's where actually we don't have lots of big data sets in the UK that are available. There are lots of data sets that are publicly available online, but they don't necessarily represent our UK population. And so that's where I think we need to see some changes. And that, that is a concern because I think what happens then is that you think that you may end up having a situation where patients are falsely reassured that they don't have something or that they're actually, they um, are given a diagnosis that they have something quite concerning when actually they don't and then they 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 become quite anxious and they're having to go to hospital and um, have extra visits and interventions like um, biopsies and things like that so I think um, it's really really important that data are really representing um, you know the people that that you're using the tool in. Absolutely so we've talked a little bit about this I think that you've sort of outlined some of the positives and the negatives there really clearly and I think that what it's clear is that if you're going to use AI and, and have it either in a medical setting or accessible by patients directly, you know, it needs to not cut corners, go th- have the right data set, have the right permissions, respect patient privacy and put the patient safety at the heart of it. And then you've, uh, you've got the basis for what could be a good tool, uh, assuming that all your research and all the rest lines up and it's, it's accurate and so on. So it does seem like there's a lot of hoops to, to jump through, but 
really important ones. So that's good to just understand that a little bit better. So can we talk a little bit about how it's actually used in dermatology at the moment? Is it used in dermatology at the moment? Or are we waiting still for the advent of proper AI in dermatology? So I think at the moment in dermatology, in my opinion, I think that um, AI is probably only fit for purpose in an experimental setting. I don't think it's really, I don't think we're there yet. I mean, it's difficult for people to understand that because actually AI is all around mm. us. You know, we everything that we do is actually already has some aspects of AI in. So, for example, I mean, you talk about things like Amazon's Alexa, iPhone, Siri, you know, these are all virtual assistants. We've got chatbots on loads of um, websites, for, for example, banking relies quite a lot on AI um, and, you know, things like detecting credit card fraud and so on. So that it, it's happening all around us. But I think in healthcare, it's, it's slightly different because, as you said, we need to really focus on patient safety and we need to make sure that before we start using it, that we've really considered all of those things around risks to patients. So, I mean, the reason I say that I think at the moment... AI is probably only fit for purpose in an experimental setting is, although we know that there is definitely evidence that algorithms can diagnose certain skin cancers, in particular melanoma, I think what we really want to see is that algorithms are actually better than what we've got at the moment in every aspect. So just being able to diagnose one or two skin cancers is not sufficient. We really need it to be, and maybe, you know, uh, this is kind of setting the bar too high, but I think we really want it to be almost 100% accurate. We want it to be much better than what we've got at the moment. And we need to be, and it needs to be equally as good as uh, identifying, say, for example, melanoma or skin cancer, but it needs to be just as good as saying it's definitely not a melanoma or it's definitely not a skin cancer. So, and that's, I think quite a big ask even for a computer and so I think we've, we've still got a bit of way to get to that point and I think the other thing is that we need more studies where these tools are really comparing to what's going on in a real life situation so that means that we're actually collecting all the information that you need to demonstrate that it is better than what we've already got at the moment because we've got some pretty robust pathways in dermatology already and I think you know why would we take on a tool that's not going to actually improve that yeah that's interesting because you do see papers come out from time to time that sort of say well this AI can predict whether it's skin cancer or not better than these dermatologists and it's quite often the point there is that that's just a dermatologist looking at a picture of a mole which is not how dermatologists diagnose skin cancer on the whole in their day-to-day -day job they see a patient they take a patient history they ask the patient questions they look at the rest of their moles etc etc and it's not really as straightforward as just being like if you look at this picture this ai is better than a zookeeper at spotting the giraffe <laughs> I think, well, that's a good analogy, actually, because I think that's exactly <laughs> the case that, you know, we, as you say, as dermatologists, to be honest, yeah, you know, because of COVID, I've probably got a lot better at making a diagnosis from a picture. But before COVID, we would always be the best, the gold standard practice is that a patient comes in and you look at them and you examine them and you take their history and that's how you make that diagnosis. So, you know, I think we do have to get better. I think COVID has taught us that we, we definitely have to start using images to make diagnoses and to 
to decide what to do for patients and where they should be seen and how they should be treated. But I think you're right that actually, if you just compare what the computer can do to me looking at a single image, it's not surprising that the computer is better. That I, I think that we would expect that. But I think if you put it against somebody, and, and we've certainly seen some papers where actually if you put the same algorithm against a dermatologist in their setting with the patient in front of them, actually the algorithm doesn't do as well as it as you thought it would. And so that's what I mean about real life studies that you really want to see what is it doing compared to what's happening, what's actually happening. Because, you know, that's not reality, is it? We're not actually just sitting in front of a computer looking at uh, one little square of a patient and making a decision about whether it is or isn't a skin cancer. You sort of say that, uh, why would we take on an AI in our clinics if it's not as good as what we've got already? Do we lose anything by that approach in terms of, well, if we have them in the clinic and train them more and they're exposed to real life scenarios and have people making them learn, well, then they'll improve the AIs quicker and we'll get to a point where we do have a really good AI in place. Or is that a sort of, uh, maybe that's a false equivalency. I have no idea. Maybe they can still do that in the background and but I'm curious about that no no I think I think there is still value in that because I think at the end of the day you know people have different experience or expertise in certain conditions don't they so some people will see lots of skin cancers all the time and some people will be seeing lots of patients with eczema for example and so I think there is definitely value in having a tool which is not necessarily better than the best or the most expert dermatologist but actually better overall than what you're the service that you're providing I think one of the things though that we have seen and I think needs a bit more work is around how do we as clinicians interact with AI so there was a study where they showed that actually if you were really confident about your diagnosis um, as a dermatologist then if the AI didn't agree with you you probably still went with your own diagnosis whereas if you were less confident so if you were a trainee for example and the AI didn't agree with your decision you tended to err on the side of the AI and so in that scenario if the AI is really influencing the doctor you want the AI to be a hundred percent correct because otherwise you know this brings up another issue which is and and this is another issue that's really again across all specialties um, and particularly a real problem right now in radiology and that is that so what happens if the AI tells you to do something and actually it turns out to be wrong who's responsible because it's a computer and you're the doctor so you know who, who where does that responsibility lie and I think ultimately it will always be the doctor's responsibility and so we need to to feel confident and to to feel that you can trust the AI you need to know that it really is very reliable and that it is it's you know not going to um, give these false diagnoses or false outcomes. Like you mentioned it's all about patient safety at the end of the day and that that is the most important part and yeah if you are relying so heavily on on AI you do want to make sure it's pretty much 100 percent. really i suppose also you need to just you know without being cynical because there's a lot of very good people doing excellent research for all the right reasons but we also just need to be careful that commercial concerns don't trump good practice and patient safety because 
you know, there is a lot of money to be made for a company that can produce a really effective, high-functioning AI that can, you know, revolutionise, say, skin cancer services or eczema or whatever it may be. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just getting that balance right. But at the same time, we don't want to lose out on amazing developments. No, no, definitely. I mean, we don't want to lose out on these developments. And I think, you know, everybody, I think in general dermatologists and patients with skin problems, you know, really welcome AI. I think we really want it to help to streamline our services and make things more efficient. And uh, and I think there are some real benefits to be had. So with patient safety being such a massive component of AI in dermatology, um, obviously there are a lot of mobile apps uh, which sort of claim to be able to diagnose or identify skin disease um, and commonly skin disease like melanoma. Are these applications reliable? Um, can patients trust what they say? Or would you say go and visit a GP in the first instance always? Yeah, I think so. As you say, there are lots of mobile apps and, and I think actually sometimes it can be quite overwhelming for both doctors and for patients. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think one of the things is we really need to think about, it goes back to what I was saying earlier around, you know, what's the evidence that underpins the app? So, um, and this can be actually quite difficult to um, sometimes find and uh, often we don't really know you know where to look to find this information and the reason I say this is because at the moment we probably don't have a really robust regulatory system that actually guarantees the quality of the evidence that underpins these apps so there are some questions that I think probably people need to think about when they start to use apps and and I think probably the main one I would say is is the app actually doing what you want it to do? So is it actually solving the problem that you want it to solve? Because sometimes apps will say they'll do something and then when you look at the what they're actually doing, they're doing something completely different. And also, yeah. are the claims realistic? So, you know, an app that promises the world probably won't be able to deliver. And so I think that's one of the things to kind of really look at and scrutinise. And then the other thing is sort of how's the app been tested in the past? You know, who has it been tested on? How was it developed? These kind of things are really important because then it tells you whether this would actually be appropriate for the problem or the the question that you're asking. And then coming back to this issue around privacy and um, patient data. So often these apps will ask you to um, give images of yourself or provide some information about yourself. And I think it's really important that patients understand what's happening to those images. You know, what, what are they using it for? Where are these images going? Who are they being shared with? And so on, because this is quite important to know because sometimes I think people don't know where their images are going on how they're being shared and actually that can be quite dangerous Mm. and I think it sort of comes down to reading the small print so you know the most important information is often in the small print around whether this tool is actually something that is going to deliver on what it says it does so people often use these apps to say, for example, apps that say, well, I'm, I'm going to tell you what your skin problem is, for example. So I'm going to make a diagnosis. But if you look in the small print, they often say, actually, this is not a diagnostic tool. You should go and see your GP. Yeah. And if that's the case, well, actually, what's the point of using it? If you're worried about something and you want to see, you, you know, you want to know what the diagnosis is, why don't you just go and see your GP? You don't need the app to tell you that. So um, I think it comes probably coming back to your question. I think yes, at this stage, if you're concerned about a changing skin lesion or you're concerned about your rash or things are getting worse, better to just see the GP and and get some proper advice because I don't think at the moment that there are any apps that are going to replace the GP. Certainly, yeah. 
Excellent. I mean, yeah, that checks out, I would say, if, if someone is truly concerned at this at this point. Absolutely. And also it, t- it ties into what you were saying earlier in that it takes a brave GP to overrule an app that said, oh, this is cancer. If Even if they, they think, well, this is definitely not skin cancer yeah yes and you know Definitely. we know that gps sort of can be a little bit cautious understandably because nobody wants to be the person that miss, misses a melanoma they can be a little bit cautious and over refer as it is and so you know i think it puts pressure on gps to refer as well well and i think if a patient is told this could be melanoma by an app and then you go to see a gp who's not 100 percent confident which is understandable as you say then you know gps do not see as many melanomas as dermatologists do mm. then the patient will also put a bit of pressure potentially on the gp to be actually i want to see a specialist you know i need to, i need a definite answer here i'm not sure i can kind of hope for the best absolutely I know that you also mentioned briefly regulation of AI um, and how it can be quite challenging getting the sort of the balance right with that. Could you explain why this is? Yeah, so um, this is an interesting area and actually very much evolving right now in the UK. Um, and that's because, you know, AI advances in the AI field happen very quickly. And so until relatively recently, it's been very complicated to understand how things are regulated. And this is a complex area both for people who are using these AI tools, but also people who are developing these AI tools. So, you know, there were so many different agencies that were involved in sort of regulating different parts of the development that actually it was difficult to know who you're supposed to go to to obtain these regulatory approvals. Um, And so actually what's happened in the UK very recently, which has been a really great initiative, is this multi-agency advice service has been set up. So this is the MASS, M-A-A-S, and basically it's a, a number of participating bodies. So it includes... NICE, so the National Institute um, of Health and Care Excellence, the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, the MHRA. So they're the ones that regulate drugs. And then the Health Research Authority, the HRA. And they're the people who um, sort of oversee clinical research in the UK. And what's happened is that they, this sort of cross-regulatory advisory service essentially is providing a one-stop shop for all people who are either developing AI tools or who are actually wanting to use these tools so that you can provide one point of access to actually give guidance for regulation and so on. So the thing about this is that it will mean it will make it easier, but it will also mean that clinicians can be confident that these new technologies, as they're developed in the UK in particular, um, and are uh, adopted that actually there has been a very rigorous process that you know somebody has really looked at the way in which these tools have been developed and tested and validated so that clinicians can be confident but also patients can feel like in the same way that patients feel about drugs that have been tested very rigorously you know the MHRA have a very robust system where you can actually you know that the drug has gone through all of these stages of development and that it's safe to use in people and so in the same way I think that's what we need for AI really and that's what this is 
aiming to do. Great. I mean, yeah, it definitely sounds like it's needed. And it sounds like it just it's offering it's about offering the clarity to everybody involved to ease the the passage and just make it easier for for developers to put patient safety first and understand you know what they've got to do. And I imagine that not all of these experts are necessarily coming a hundred percent from a health background. I imagine it's it's a fairly mixed field. Mm. Yeah, and I think many people that are developing technologies in this space are not healthcare background. I think a lot of people um, now, a lot of doctors, nurses, clinicians um, are involved in developing products and are supporting development of products. But actually, historically, this has all been in the sort of computer scientists, mathematics field, machine learning experts. So I think they have also struggled to work together with clinicians in order to develop these tools. And and I think what doesn't help then is that you've got all of these different bodies that have got all of these different guidelines that are trying to sort of make sure that um, everybody is doing something which is, you know, trustworthy um, for patients. Absolutely. One one last question. We've talked about the evolving regulatory landscape and how important it is i mean do you think there's any important changes that you would like to see implemented in an ideal world it sounds like you think we're heading in the right direction but do you think there's sort of more we can do to improve the regulatory landscape around ai um i think at the moment the mass service are soon to actually put out some guidance so i think that will probably be or i'm optimistic that that will help to make it easier for everybody and also help us to guide patients when thinking about you know whether a AI tool is suitable or not and I think that having these kind of clear and transparent arrangements for regulation and access are really essential so I'm optimistic that things are changing I think it has been difficult over the last few years particularly again over covid pandemic things have really accelerated in a big way and i Mm. think that actually we just need to be a bit more cautious around this and you know i think a lot of people particularly in the tech world and in the digital field you know they want to run fast and and break things and of course in healthcare that's the absolute opposite of what we want to do and i don't think any clinician or patient really wants to break things in healthcare so i think it's this i hope will just help us to not put a break on it, but actually just, you know, we want things to be fast and efficient for sure. And we know that we can make things, that we can actually do things in a much more efficient way. We've also seen that over COVID. We've managed to run multi-centred trials internationally in a very short time, which we never were able to do before that. So I think, you know, there are big changes, but I think that the regulatory side needs to just help just pull some of this back so that we can actually do things safely. Yeah, amazing. I um, just feel like I've learned so much in the last 50 minutes or so. Yeah. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much for joining us today, Roberta. There's no problem at all. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Roberta Matin for joining us today. It was truly a great episode and really insightful and easy to understand, look into what could have been quite a complex topic. So we really appreciate her joining us. Um, Again, this is our last episode of this season, uh, but you can go back and listen to the large catalogue of episodes that we do have already recorded if you do miss us too much while we're off the air. Thanks again for joining us and listening in. (laughs) 